Hey, Rachel, I was reading X-Force, you know, the new Cy Spurrier one. Yeah, what's on your mind, Miles? So, what's the deal with Cable's kid? Tyler? Uh, wasn't he actually Strife's kid? Either way, he's been dead since, like, 96. Why do you ask? Uh, no, not not him. Um, the other one, the one that's in the coma right now. Oh, okay, that's Hope. She was the first mutant baby born after the Scarlet Witch reality warped the mutant population to near extinction after House of M. House of M. Okay, that's the magnetocentric utopia where the Scarlet Witch's imaginary but not actually imaginary kids were, right? Yeah, that one. Okay, so Hope... Right, she's not actually Cable's kid. Um, Cyclops just sent her off with him because so many people were trying to kill her, they figured she'd actually be safer growing up on the run in a post-apocalyptic future. Oh, the, the, one, in the, the one with the Sentinels. No, no, the literally post-apocalyptic Ascani timeline. Okay, the one where Cable's from? Well, the one where he grew up. Cable's actually from the main timeline, but when he was a baby, Cyclops had to send him to that future with this nun who turned out to be the far future version of his alternate universe uh... sister. She's actually from Earth 811, that's the Days of Future Past timeline, but because she jumped back in time... What? It was really I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the second episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So last week, we began at the beginning with an introduction to the strangest heroes of them all, even though they didn't actually turn out to be all that strange, and their Silver Age roots. But part of what defines a hero is the forces they fight, so this week, we're going to be focusing on the X-Men's definitive villains. And one of the things that's interesting is that the definitive villains of really a lot of X-Men have their roots right here in the Silver Age. The Silver Age got a lot wrong, but it also got a lot right. Right, you only see a handful of X-Men introduced in this era, but the villains, like a huge number of the ones who keep coming back, start out really early in the comic. So, uh, not all of them do, and we'll be getting to a little of that as well, including, you know, why. Why some stick, why some don't. But the really iconic ones? Totally. So, the first thing I want to look at is what makes an iconic X-Men villain? What, What defines that? Not just the ones who keep coming back, but the ones who are really... The signature villains. So we've been talking a lot about this over the last week, preparing for this episode, and what we keep coming back to ourselves is it's the ones who have thematic ties to the X-Men, to the characters, or to the metaphor of mutants themselves— Things that are unique to X-Men that wouldn't really work as well in, say, Avengers or Fantastic Four. Right. They're characters who are mutants. But they're not just mutants. They're ones whose identity is mutants and whose relationship to being mutants into the mutant population is a definitive part of who they are, why they do what they do, and what they do. Or they're characters who are directly um, reactionary to mutants, like the Sentinels, which we're going to come back to in a few minutes. So we talked a lot about Magneto last time. Uh, He was a big part of X-Men number one, but... He had a great hat. Oh man, great is one word for it. He had an impressive hat. He had a memorable hat. And you know, that's what a lot of the Silver Age is about. Good? Nah. Memorable? There we go. Um, so, Magneto is, is the definitive, like we said last week again, Magneto is the definitive X-Men villain. Right, and he starts out pretty simplistic, as does everything in uh, X-Men as a series. He's just a dude in a red costume who can do pretty much anything with magnetism, whether it's related to magnetism or not. We're going to do a roundup at some point um, that I've, I've been clipping panels um, called The Miracle of Magnetism, where we go through every single way that Magneto uses magnetism in the Silver Age. It's amazing. So on our website, when we, before we started the podcast, Rachel and I did a little a brief bio for each of us and mentioned our favorite characters. Mine was Longshot. He's not going to show up for a long time. But I think the best character in the entire franchise, the most interesting, is in fact Magneto. 
Whoa, so you're a Magneto fan. Are you like part of Team Magneto was right? I mean, Magneto made some valid points. Uh, that's the thing. Like, you can always, I think with a lot of good villains, you can always see where they're coming from. I mean, some of them are just Prince Joffrey and they're terrible. But uh, with Magneto, you know, he's got some kind of valid perspectives. He's been through some shit. He's, uh, he's concerned that mutant kind itself is going to go through some shit. And he has a fix for this problem. I mean, it's not necessarily a great fix. And it's certainly counter to everything the X-Men themselves are about. But, you know, he's he's trying. He's got good intentions. But he's also kind of the villain who becomes the oppressor. And that's something that comes up again and again. And it comes up especially in relation to the second sort of iconic group of X-Men villains who he's part of, who gets introduced in the Silver Age, which is the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. First of all, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is an awesome name. It is right there on the tin what they do. I don't know that they're actually called that in the pages of the comic they for are. quite a while. Oh, are they? They are. I thought it was just a Stanley hyperbole-based title. I could be both, but... Well, I guess at this point, everything is Stanley hyperbole based. Yeah, and they're they are really really silly. They get called they they their name gets changed to the Brotherhood of Mutants later, but in their early appearances, they are just full scale evil. And Magneto is too. He's got like a zillion different cars and vehicles and ridiculous things. Everything he has has like horseshoe big enormous horseshoe magnets attached to it. Um, and he is like he's the cheesiest villain. And you talked about him being, you know, this this really serious, interesting, sympathetic, thematic character. But when he's with the Brotherhood, I mean, he just he gets mustache twirlingly ridiculous. There's an issue where where someone someone asks him about loyalty and he's like, I don't want loyalty. I just want fear and obedience. Okay, wait. So let's go back a second because mustache twirling villain. So Magneto doesn't actually have a mustache. And that is a shame. So if he did, here's the question. Would it be shaped like a horseshoe magnet or would would it just be a big letter M over his face? I think that there needs to be a what if issue about that. Maybe, like, there can be two alternate universes, like Earth-615 and Earth-623, each of which has a different mustachioed Magneto, and they have to fight. Readers, we want to see your takes on this. Send us your drawings and your imaginings of Magneto's iconic Silver Age mustache, if he'd had one. Uh, speaking of, if you haven't seen our blog, a definite shout-out for the amazing Laser Wolf fan art we got. David Wynn is rad. He is a longtime friend of ours. He's the one who drew my Twitter icon that I've had for years and years. That's me as Cyclops. Um... And yeah, he drew us a laser wolf. It was the best ever. I've never had anyone draw anything based on a joke I made. Thanks, laser guys. Laser wolf. Uh, so anyway, back to Magneto, mustache aside. So yeah, um, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants first shows up in X-Men number four, still very close to the beginning, right after the number three that we talked a lot about, where everyone gets a distinct personality. And the X-Men have fought solo villains up to this point, but here now, the, the Brotherhood's presented as kind of their first thing that approaches an equal analog. They've even got a pretty a demographic lineup that's pretty much broken down like the X-Men. They've got the girl, they've got powers that don't exactly reflect, but overlap pretty consistently. Right, so um, let's real quick just go over uh, who the Brotherhood consists of. Um, Okay, we've already met Magneto. So I'll start with Toad. Um, Mortimer Toynbee, I believe is his name, which is a great name. It is. Um, So the Toad, he's this weird, ugly little dude that jumps around, and you can kind of imagine talking in a master, master kind of voice. Yeah, Toad is, if you've seen the movie Manos, The Hands of Fate, Toad is basically really bouncy Torgo. Uh, Torgo really would have benefited from that. He, he had a lot of trouble walking because of those weird prosthetics. But that's a, to- a topic for a different podcast. So, yeah, Toad, um, you get the impression, and this is really not uh, – it's not in the pages, but it's, it's implied at least to me that, you know, if you look like Toad, he's kind of freakish looking. 
um, then you really you're going to get rejected a lot. You're going to get made fun of by the terrible Silver Age uh, white bread characters that seem to populate the Marvel universe, and you're really going to be looking for a place to belong. Toad is a career cultist. He is a guy who is always looking for someone to tell him what to think and tell him what to do, who he can follow blindly into the mouth of hell. Um, he does this over and over and over again with a bunch of different characters. He tries to strike out on his own as a supervillain at one point, and it just sucks. And he's really miserable. Uh, He does it with the Brotherhood. He does it for a while with the X-Men. He does it with the Hellfire Club. Basically, Toad just really, really wants... Toad really just wants parents. Uh, Yeah, and Magneto, he's happy to fulfill this role in a really, you know, abusive, bad guy kind of way. Um, But yeah, so we have Toad. He is... He's the very definition of sycophant. So, uh, who's next? Speaking of the Hellfire Club, we've also got Mastermind. Mastermind is going to show up later as an X-Men villain in association with a different group, the Hellfire Club, but they're not going to be around until the 70s, so... Looking at him in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Mastermind is a dude who creates illusions. Um, He's basically a telepath, but specifically he can only affect people's perceptions. And he is super, super creepy. Um, He spends a lot of the Silver Age hitting on the Scarlet Witch. And specifically arguing that, you know, if she consents to an illusion, it's really still consent. It's just as good as the real thing. And that's something that is going to be a huge, huge deal in one of the much later iconic story arcs of the X-Men, the Dark Phoenix Saga. And again, reading between the lines, Stanley may or may not have intended this, but just like Toad, you can kind of get a, a picture of his background just from how he's presented. With Mastermind, I kind of feel like the dude's got some gender issues. You know, he was creepy, he was rejected a lot, and so now he's become really full of himself. Oh my god, Mastermind is an MRA. I was actually just thinking the same thing. Throw a fedora on that dude and stick him on a forum. Holy shit, Mastermind is... Wow, Yeah, this makes so much sense. And actually, Mastermind, he's a little interesting to me because, you know, I I mentioned how nuanced Magneto is, and really a lot of these characters end up pretty nuanced. Mastermind kind of never does. He's just straight up evil. Yeah, he's just, he's really manipulative. He wants what he wants. He doesn't really see anything wrong with using trickery to get it. And he feels like basically, yeah, he is, he is, he is pure chaotic and justifying the means evil. He's also kind of stylish. He's the only member of the Brotherhood that just wears normal clothes. He's also of, the uh, only member of the Brotherhood who, who um, grows a mustache, which, and I, I appreciate that commitment to villainy. Hey, you know, at least there's that. So anyway, the other two members, um, now these guys are end up being really, really important. They're going to be everywhere on the big screen coming up soon. They are Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Now, we mentioned the Scarlet Witch as the, the chick who um, Mastermind keeps hitting on. Um, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are, at this point, reluctant members of the Brotherhood. They're there because Magneto saved their lives. Uh, He saved them, I think, from a lynch mob. A lynch mob of angry humans. A lynch mob of angry, uh, generically European peasants. Um, Fucking generic Europe. Right, and this this is, again, this is like, this is the origin story of half the mutants in the Marvel Universe. Like, involves a lynch mob of generic, angry European peasants. But um, they're not really into Magneto's philosophy. They're basically there because they feel like they owe him their lives. And a couple times, I mean, they actually, the X-Men keep on saying, you know, you should come with us. And they keep on being like, well, we'd really like to, but, and they're going to become straight up superheroes later. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as far as the reluctance, it's, uh, we've mentioned that the, um, the whole, the theme of mutant persecution by humans, it's mentioned, but you don't really see a lot of it. And this is a nice other angle on that. Pietro Maximoff, that's Quicksilver, uh, you know, Wanda is again, the girl, not a lot of personality for female characters at this point in the Silver Age. And at this point, her powers are just that she can throw hex bolts. She can make people trip over things. She can cause minor context-specific incidents of bad luck. At one point, she spills Mastermind's drink on him. Take that, you know, foolish foe. I am a magnificent mutant. Later on, she's going to be able to completely overwrite reality. But for now, 
minor bad luck. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So Quicksilver. Um, and he's a speedster. Yes. Straight up. He, he can move very, very quickly. He's kind of the Flash, but way more of a jerk. Uh, and with, with uh, smooth white hair. Um, so the X-Men, like Rachel said, they're like, hey, join us. Uh, our philosophy is awesome. Magneto's a jerk. And Pietro basically doesn't believe them. He's like, hey, I don't, I don't like this Magneto guy. And while he did save my sister, that's not the reason I'm sticking around. The reason I'm sticking around is because I think he's right. I think humanity is never going to accept us. Later on, they do leave the Brotherhood. And again, the X-Men offered to, to let them come join. And what they say, I think, is, is really interesting and really sort of indicative of the characters who always, who've always kind of sat in a moral gray point, even when they're heroes, which is that they've never really had the chance to figure shit out for themselves. And so they're just going to they're going to sort of step back and try to do that. And that's a theme that follows their those characters, honestly, I think, for their entire careers. Absolutely. Um, and they they go around the Marvel Universe. I mean, Quicksilver, he's been on the X-Men. He's been in the Avengers. He's been in X-Factor where he is currently the Scarlet Witch. She's primarily been an Avengers character. And actually, we mentioned that they're going to be on the big screen um, coming up. They're characters in both the new Days of Future Past movie and the upcoming Avengers movie. And um, in pretty different versions than those. We're going to come back to the, to the to the movies later. We're actually going to be doing a full lead up to Days of Future Past. And we're also going to come back to these two a lot later, along with Polaris, who's another character who's introduced in the Silver Age. For now, though, I want to talk a little bit more about the Brotherhood as a whole, because you mentioned the, the metaphor, the X-Men fighting against a universe that hates and fears them. And the X-Men are mutants trying to become or trying to set themselves up as perceived as a model minority. Um, Tell me more about model minorities. So the idea of a model minority is it's a minority group that, that functions at or, or, you know, proves at or, or, or is, is associated with, or is assumed to be either fully assimilated into or functioning more effectively or at a higher level than the majority. What that means in a practical level is a lot of invisibility, a lot of being cut out of affirmative action, a lot of diversity denial, um, and a lot of, a, a huge amount of pressure to assimilation. In terms of the X-Men, what it means is basically trying to prove that they're the good guys, they're superheroes. Trying to come off as basically, you know, we're normal just like you to, uh, to be seen as similar as humanity to possible, as possible. As similar to baseline humanity as possible or like baseline humanity, but, you know, even cooler. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will never succeed at that. It is the X Men have been around for fifty years as a team. They have never they and they that they are never going to be able to do that. They have never been able to do that. And the fact that they can't, and the realization that they can't, um, is one of the biggest and most interesting and darkest ongoing themes and ongoing changes in the book. We've heard them talking a lot about fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them. And we've seen that on an individual basis. We've seen a couple mobs. We've seen, you know, backup stories where where people get things thrown at them because they're mutants. But it's also like really small one-off stuff. We don't really see that on a systemic level until we get to another set of villains. And these, again, you've been seeing a lot of in relation to the movies because they're going to figure really heavily into Days of Future Past. And those are the Sentinels. Right. Now, if you've seen the X-Men cartoon, which you'll be hearing more about soon, the first two-parter is Night of the Sentinels. I mean, when you have a new show starting, one of the things that show is supposed to do is figure out, okay, what's iconic enough that it can be the the fans who maybe are not familiar with these characters' introduction to this entire world? And I think the Sentinels are an awesome choice. Let's talk some about them. So the Sentinels are giant, humanoid, mutant-hunting robots. Um, Jack Kirby was not drawing the series when they first showed up in um, 14, but he did design them. And they are, they are, basically, they are giant robots as defined, as designed by Jack Kirby. If you haven't seen them, but you know what Kirby's art looks like, you know what the Sentinels look like. I want to talk like. a little more about this, because one thing, and we, we missed this earlier, one thing we keep coming back to in X-Men is the idea of terrible headwear. Just terrible. 
So we mentioned that with Magneto, but the Scarlet Witch, I mean... Oh my god, so you know the thing where people shove cats' faces through pieces of bread? It looks like that, but bright red. And, like, no one comments on it. It's just like, oh, you're... It's just there. It's like like this weird two-dimensional wimple situation. I mean, it's just, is that what you wear in generic Europe? Is that what happens? Is it a modesty thing? Is it a religious thing? We don't know. I think that she's ashamed because Quicksilver has such awesome hair. That's possible. Uh, and actually, like, once we finally see Magneto take off his helmet, he's got pretty much the same hair. Yeah, see, this is why this is why I keep my hair short, because, like, you've got this amazing, like, mane of ringlets thing, and I just, I, I know that I can't compete on that front. This is, this is I think, Wanda's equivalent, have her, you thought, her weird face shield. Have you thought of wearing red face bread instead? You know, it's really, really hard to find when you're not an evil mutant. That's fair. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we have Magneto, we have the Scarlet Witch. Um, I mean, we have those hoods the X-Men wear, but whatever. But the Sentinels. So you picture like a giant dude made of metal with this stoic, stony face. You know, there's no no hint of, of compassion or humanity in there. And then you basically put him in a big metal toboggan hat with little fake blood capsules all around their forehead. Uh, what? I mean, again, Jack Kirby, he had his own style and it was awesome, but these things are particularly weird looking. You know, the thing is, those hats and like the, the circle of rivets actually harkens back to a lot of early early illustrations of robots. It's a really Kirby-esque take, but it's a it, that's actually a visual motif that's been around for a lot longer than Sentinels of the X-Men. Well, so I kind of look at it at them like um, like the Daleks from Doctor Who, right? I mean, these things are ridiculous. They come at you with a whisk and a plunger, and they're basically big, like, salt shakers. Yeah. But they've become scary based on context, and that's kind of what the Sentinels are. If you just look at them, they're goofy as shit. But as far as what they represent, how unstoppable they are, just the sheer hatred and bigotry that leads to their very existence, they work a whole lot better. Also, once they were recolored purple instead of being this weird, like, orangey-yellow that they were at first, that helped too. Truth. So let's talk about where they come from. Now, the Sentinels originally are built by a dude named Bolivar Trask. This is played by Peter Dinklage in the upcoming movie. Tyrion um, Lannister. Right. And in that movie, he's a scientist, but in the comics, he's just, he's an anthropologist. He is not a scientist. He's not a roboticist. He's just, he's this rogue anthropologist who decides that he is going to make an army of giant killer robots. I mean, I took Anthropology 101 in college, and we didn't talk about that. I kind of feel like my college missed out on an important opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's one of the things I really love about this. It's total Silver Age logic. Like, here's this anthropologist dude that's never been mentioned before, and he just, like, starts talking in front of, I think, what, the UN or something? Um, or maybe it's just some major TV network. Does he even do that? He's, pre- he's pretty much operating privately at first. But yeah, the point is he just shows up out of nowhere. He's like, I'm an anthropologist. Mutants are scary. Oh, and by the way, I built like dozens of giant robots apparently completely on my own. And this raises some great questions. First of all, where does he get the funding to do this? Where does he get the expertise to do it? And he's an anthropologist. So you would think if he sees this this community and this population he doesn't understand, he'd, you know study them and not build giant killer robots to take them out. Well, see, okay, I have my own interpretation of this, right? Like, he's not get, uh, hanging out with a mutant population and, you know, trying to be seen as one of them or and wearing, like, you know, his own yellow and black tunic himself. X-Men in the Mist. Oh, no, I think he was doing it with the Sentinels. Sentinels in the Mist. So, uh, you know, he shows up and he's like, oh, I'm going to put on a toboggan hat and, uh, and walk really stiffly and make a pronouncement in a voice very much like this. But it doesn't work because the Sentinels are also... A classic robot apocalypse scenario, which means that they're programmed to perform a task and then they realize that humanity is stupid and their creator is underqualified and they're going to take him out too and they're just going to take over the world. And at that point, they can protect humanity from mutants because they're going to rule the world. What I really like is that they come to this decision in like three panels after they show up. Yeah, you know, this is this is one of those. Oh, well, yeah, I guess that was inevitable. Yeah, it's like, hey, hey, guys, look at my robots. Oh, crap. My robots are rebelling. You should have seen that coming, Trask. 
Especially with a dignified name like Bolivar and a dignified mustache. Again, there's a good mustache on and that And an guy. anthropology degree. So, yeah, so Bolivar Trask, he's got these giant robots he's introducing. Um, but one of the things he also does is, I guess the media really likes being sensationalistic with little or no research in the Silver Age. Um, yeah, unlike now, when they are strictly and entirely fact-based and very, very moderate. Touche, but one of the advantages the Silver Age had was amazing illustrations. Like, so there's this picture, there's an artist's rendition of uh, um, uh, uh, the inevitable future ruled by mutants. And there's like this this dude that kind of looks like, uh, what's his name, Kif from uh, Futurama, um, like holding this whip and there are humans like carrying bricks and like, wait, if you're a mutant, why why are you doing that? Do you have like mutant whip wielding powers? What's, what's the going The important thing about this mutant is that he's also got a great sweater vest. Uh, he does because 60s. But yeah, like, so this is the first time we really see this kind of anti-mutant hysteria. And this is how people comic. see mutants. And that's that's sort of the double part of Trask's campaign is that he's got he's got the Sentinels, but he's also got this propaganda campaign that becomes defining in the public perception of mutants as much as the actions of mutants like Magneto. Like, this is when the X-Men's premise becomes the X-Men's reality. Right, like, you see a lot of, you know, your standard Silver Age white-bred American families kind of reacting to uh, the television coverage and the newspaper coverage that comes directly out of Trask's pronouncements. Like, and you you have, you have uh, to be fair, a diversity of opinion. You know, some people are like, hey, maybe they're not that bad, but a lot of people are like, yeah, that's freaky. These things are dangerous, these mutants. We're going to talk about this later We're gonna, when we do an episode about alternate takes on the Silver Age, but there's a, there are uh, the Marvels by Kurt Busiek explores this and this specific newspaper article in a lot of detail. Um, it's a great supplemental read to, to the Silver Age X-Men. Highly recommended. Also some beautiful, beautiful painted art. Alex Ross, right? Yeah. And this is this is one of those this is this is one of those books where whether or not you're an X-Men fan, if you're a Marvel fan or if you're a Silver Age or superhero fan, um, we cannot recommend highly enough. It is definitive canon for a reason. Yep. Um, and yeah, the, the, that picture of Martian dude with a whip that actually shows up in there. Um, going back to the Sentinels um, and just the logistics of the Sentinels. So there are some things that are going to keep coming back. There's also Master Mold. Now, Master Mold is basically a giant robot who poops out other robots. I love so much that you said that. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, Master Mold, he's like he's like a giant Sentinel. Like, I know. He's literally a giant robot who poops out other robots. Like, he's sitting on a throne and other robots come out of him. This may or may not be literal, literal, but we're just going to go with it. So, so Trask, Trask the anthropologist, <laughs> not only creates this race of killer robots, but he specifically builds the factory for the killer robots to itself be a killer robot. I kind of feel like this guy, like everything in his, his house is, is killer robot themed. Like he's got killer robot cereal bowls, like a killer robot bed. It's like one of those race car beds, but it's a killer robot. He must be so bad at parties. Oh, geez. Maybe that's why he's so mad at everybody. And he's also a terrible parent because he's got a kid who is going to come back. Now, the X-Men take out the Sentinels and they go away for about 40 issues. But they come back in X-Men 57. At this point, Stanley's not writing anymore. Um, it's Roy Thomas on writing and Neil Adams on art. And it is gorgeous. Quick aside, Neil Adams can make things look sane that really aren't. It kind of, it's kind of like how if Bella Lugosi, no matter what nonsense he says in a movie, you're like, yeah, yeah, I buy you're that. You're thinking Bella of Vincent Lugosi. Price. Oh, you're totally right. But I think Bella Lugosi counts too. So Bolivar Trask has a son named Larry. And as is the way of comic books. I'm just going to jump in here. What kind of a downgrade is that from Bolivar to Larry? I mean, come on. Didn't, didn't your daddy love you, Larry? This is American assimilationism in practice, Miles. Oh, probably true. So Larry Trask. Now, if you have seen or read Spider-Man, if you are aware of any legacy villains, you know exactly what I'm going to say. Larry was along for part of the ride for the first time, but he didn't really see how it resolved. All he saw was his dad dead, 
after a fight with the X-Men. I will have my revenge, X-Men, he probably said. Larry teams up with um, an anti-mutant judge to bring back the Sentinels, and this time he's got government sponsorship. He's not just a rogue anthropologist following in his father's footsteps. And this is an important theme because the government cracking down on mutants, like, I think that's when the themes really start to gel. Once you realize that it's not just protecting people that hate and fear you, it's kind of protecting a country and a world and just, you know, these entrenched power structures that kind of want to screw you over. So you're helping them, but really, if they see you, then you're going to be their enemy anyway. Brief aside here, the government and the government's stance on mutants comes up consistently in relation to the civil rights metaphor. And it's one of the places where it works best, but it's also one of the places where it most acutely breaks down. There's a great essay I tried to find before I came over here that I'm going to find, and I'm going to link in the blog post attached to this, about the ways that that, that mutants kind of fail as a civil rights metaphor, specifically just with regards to superpowers and the way that complicates that. Um, there's actually a pair a pair of essays. One of them I know is by David Brothers, and it's about a recent controversy involving the use of the term the M-word for mutant. Um, right, yeah, that's definitely some this last year, right there. But it's a, great, it's a great set of reads, and it's especially a really good thematic link to talking about the Sentinels and government persecution of mutants. Cool, yeah, we'll link those on the blog. Going back to Larry Trask. Now, Larry is a smart dude. He is not, not going to do his dad's robot apocalypse scenario, and he builds, in a, he builds in a fail-safe where he can mentally take control of any of the Sentinels. That should work, except Larry's also kind of crazy. He gets more and more fanatical. He decides that he doesn't just want to stop the mutants. He wants to kill them all. And his judge buddy is finally like, nope, nope, got to stop you. And in the process, he rips off this medallion that Larry's father gave him as a kid and made him promise to always wear. Do people just not question these things? It's like, hey, here's a big piece of Halloween jewelry. Don't take it off. Just, you know, because. Well, you know, his dad's an anthropologist. He, he knows from ritualistic jewelry. I, I figured he would have given him like a big metal toboggan cap. Well, turns out Larry... Larry Trask is a mutant. And this medallion, apparently something, something Silver Age. So it hid him from the Sentinels. But now they know. And they decide, you know, you're a mutant. We won't listen to you. We're just going to follow the last command you gave when we thought you were human, which is... Give me some coffee. And so they just keep bringing him coffee again and again until the room's filled with coffee. That's not what happens. It's kill all the mutants. So how, how does this get resolved? How do the mutants not all get killed? Oh my god, this is my favorite resolution of a Silver Age story ever. So the X-Men fight their way to them. And they cannot take down the Sentinels. They can't take them on in a fair fight. And so Cyclops convinces the Sentinels. He, he's, he's like, you, you, you have to eradicate all mutants, right? But they'll keep happening. They'll keep being born. You have to eradicate the source of mutation. And we all know that's radiation. And where does radiation come from? The sun. Yeah. Cyclops stops the Sentinels by convincing them to go fight the sun. I kind of, you guys remember that scene in Monty Python and the Search of the Holy Grail where Lance, or I think it's Lancelot, he's just like hitting a castle with a sword repeatedly? I'd imagine it's kind of like that, but with more melting. That's how that resolves. And then, you know, of course, the Sentinels are gone and we never see them again. Except that's not true. They're the source of like half the Splinter Dark Futures, again, including Days of Future Past. They're going to come back and come back and come back. They're showing up currently in Uncanny X-Men. They will be around forever. And, I mean, I think they're they're ridiculously compelling. I mean, at first glance, they're just big, dumb robots, whatever. But what they represent, they're like the, you know, oh, no matter how good you guys are, no matter how much you X-Men convince humanity that you are good folks, there are always going to be those people who are so scared of you that they're going to build giant robots to fight you. They're also a chance for the X-Men to show off. When you are a superhero who is a good guy, you pull your punches always when you're fighting a person. And with the X-Men especially, and especially the X-Men who have really destructive powers that that should be fatal, 
you don't really get a lot of chance to see them let loose. And the Sentinels give them an opportunity to just go full bore. Right, because, you know, if you're fighting robots, hey, blow the hell out of them. Well, especially, can... like, five-story tall robots. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like uh, how in the Ninja Turtles cartoon, they turn the foot soldiers into robots. This is very much why, again, Night of the Sentinels, episode one, you get to see Cyclops and Gambit and Rogue being truly awesome because they're these big metal dudes exploding everywhere. Those are the iconic Silver Age villains. But there are some others who've really stuck around and who've, who've kept coming back enough that I think they're worth at least touching on. Right. So we were going through our big uh, Silver Age list of villains. and uh, probably, There are a lot of them. <laughs> there are. But probably the one that shows up uh, the most, aside from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, probably I, I think even substantially more than the Sentinels, is the Juggernaut. Now, the Juggernaut isn't a mutant, is he? No, and he is a dude named Kane Marco. He's Charles Xavier's brother. He's Charles Xavier's brother, Kane. I mean, you know, don't read anything into this, everybody. We're sure that's a coincidence. The so, Silver Age was a bastion of subtlety and taste, y'all. Yep. So, you know, Kane Marco, he's he's sort of a dick from the start. We hear some backstory. It's actually kind of great. The first time the Juggernaut shows up, Professor Xavier's like, put up all these defenses. And now, while the defenses hold the Juggernaut off, let me tell you his entire backstory slowly. And this, in every single medium where the Juggernaut is a thing, they do that story where we're going to put up a bunch of defenses and while he breaks through all of them we're going to do a whole bunch of flashbacks this actually happened in an episode of spider-man and his amazing friends which was my personal first exposure to the juggernaut it happens in that it happens in the 90s x-men cartoon it happens in x-men evolution this is the juggernaut intro story so this is the the start of this fine tradition so the real short version is Xavier's dad died. He was the radiation researcher guy working on nuclear stuff. Um, his uh, his dad's co-worker, uh, Kurt Marco, ends up marrying his mom and thus becomes his stepfather. In some continuities, he was responsible for the accident that killed Xavier's dad because, of course, nothing is ever straightforward. Mm-hmm. Kurt already had a son named Kane. And Kane, Kane's huge. Kane's a dick. Basically. And he's very jelly, jealous of Xavier because... Xavier's telepathy uh, came out kind of early for a mutant, and he was just, like, good at everything, and Kane got really mad about this, became his rival. They ended up in the Korean War together, got trapped in a cave because Kane was running away and there was a cave. Yeah, Kane, Kane deserts. Xavier chases after him. They end up in this cave. Kane gets trapped there. Xavier leaves. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, you're skipping the most important part, which is that it's the cave that houses the crimson bands of Cytorak, which I love how— I was how... getting there. Oh, okay. Well, the point is, Xavier, Xavier's like, oh, wait, I've heard of this place— from somewhere. You know, around. Now, Ciderac is from the hardcore magic end of the Marvel Universe. Like, this is basically Doctor Strange territory. Yeah, and so um, there's there's a gem, and uh, Kane picks it up, and he starts turning into something creepy, and then Xavier leaves, and Kane's presumably trapped under rubble for years. But it turns him into this thing called the Juggernaut, which is essentially... A dude who was the same dude he was before, but really big and covered in a weird brown and red costume. He's also unstoppable. He's functionally a, yeah, literally a juggernaut of, of rage. Um, Actually, Kane, Xavier uh, pulls the definition of the word juggernaut from the dictionary in describing him at one point. Charles Xavier, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, Kane isn't the only juggernaut. The juggernaut is, you know, anyone can in theory become this given the bands and given the blessing of this elder god. Right, uh, Colossus does at one point. Right, but but Kane's the one now and he has a huge revenge beef with Xavier, so he decides he's gonna, he's gonna barge in. Now, part of the Juggernaut deal is that he gets a magic hat that keeps him, uh, that makes him immune to telepathy. We're coming back to that theme again, guys. This helmet is amazing. If you're not familiar with what it looks like, just do a quick Google search and be astounded. He looks kind of like Ram Man from He-Man, but possibly even less cool. Yeah, all of the supervillains have the same haberdasher, and he is amazing. 
the guy, he, I'm sure he's put like a bunch of additions onto his house. He keeps getting work. So the juggernaut, you know, whatever, they fight him. They end up uh, this time, as most others, having to pull off his helmet so Xavier can mind blast him. So here we have this character, right? So he's based on magic. He doesn't really have – he's not really a part of many of the themes of X-Men other than I'm mad at my brother, which is yeah, he's, not he's, much he's, of a theme. His entire motivation most of the times he shows up is that he's got a huge hate on for Xavier. He tries to break into the mansion. He tries to level everything. He's incredibly boring. But he does accomplish one thing. And like, like the Sentinels who give the X-Men a chance to break free and use their powers, Juggernaut. He, uh, we were trying to think of, like, why does Juggernaut keep coming back? What is so special about him? And I think what it is is he – so he's this big, unstoppable dude. He is like a single force. He's like, you know, in an RPG when you fight the big boss, basically all the X-Men, they have to, A, use their powers in unorthodox ways to stop him, but more importantly, B, work together in, in unorthodox ways. And that's really one of the things that makes uh, superhero team books so cool to read. The X-Men are all about teamwork. They are all about figuring out ways to use their powers. Their iconic moves – are largely teamwork based. There's actually there's a really awesome Adam Warrock song off of his X Men EP that's about exact. It's called Teamwork. It's about exactly that. Uh, anyway, we're gonna see the Juggernaut come back a number of times. Now, one thing um, we also should mention. One thing the Juggernaut has in common with all of the members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, except for Mastermind, all of these characters, Magneto. Quicksilver, the Scarlet Witch, even Toad and the Juggernaut, they all end up as heroes, at least for a time, working with the X-Men. Or at least going back and forth. Um, Yeah, Juggernaut as a hero is, um, that happened in a run of the comics that's generally, you know, justly reviled. This is Chuck Austin's run in the early aughts. Um, And that's actually a pretty cool, you know, side arc to it. He also hooks up with She-Hulk during that. Although they did retcon that away because apparently a bunch of She-Hulk fans were very offended. Aw. Yeah, well. Um, But yeah, and so, you know, we'll see this again and again and again. I mean, later on Rogue, she starts as a villain and she's one of the most iconic X-Men out there. Uh, Speaking of Rogue, something I should have brought up when we were talking about the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is there's one definitive member who doesn't actually show up in the Silver Age, and that is Mystique. Right, Raven Darkholm. She's a shapeshifter. She can impersonate other people. Chances are, if anybody does anything out of character in the Marvel Universe ever, she's probably Mystique. Um, Or will be retconned to have been. Um, Mystique is actually going to make her first appearance in the late 70s. Uh, She showed up for the first time, I believe, in... Man, I wrote this down. Yes, in Ms. Marvel number 16 in 1978, she'll make her way over to the X-Books from there. And in some cases, she'll have been retconned to be part of the Brotherhood from the start, but she'll become their definitive member and often their leader. Right. Um, And, you know, she as well even spent a little bit of time as a hero. And so why does this happen? So I'm thinking... Well, they're all mutants for starts. Well, they're all mutants, yes. But in terms of villains turning around to end up as heroes either permanently or temporarily, I think a lot of that we see its roots in X-Men number four, where Quicksilver, essentially the reason he's with the Brotherhood is because he is, uh, he's misinformed. He's seen a a subset of humanity, these generic evil Europeans, who are not necessarily representative. So he's kind of got the wrong idea. And once he gets the right idea... He starts to see things the way the X-Men do, and they tend to have open arms when it comes to outcasts because they know what it's like to be a mutant in a world that sucks towards mutants. I'm not sure that's entirely the wrong idea, considering that humanity then proceeds to build giant killer robots to take them out. But it brings up something that's that's a theme and it's going to be a theme on and off throughout, which is mutant solidarity and mutant identity politics. The idea that ultimately what A lot of the villains are fighting for, too, is the survival of mutants and their ability to survive safely and with dignity and agency. 
Right. And so because a lot of these conflicts are not like, I want to destroy the world versus, hey, I want to have the world not be destroyed. It's more of a, this is my perspective on this shitty situation versus this is my perspective on this shitty situation. And in in the case of Xavier and Magneto, ultimately what what it turns out is that they're really both wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, their, their ideas are essentially extreme and extreme and opposite poles, and they're thus incomplete because they miss out on nuance. But, you know, regardless, we're going to see a lot of these villains show up as X-Men later on. You know who doesn't show up as an X-Men, who's one of the, the Silver Age villains that I, I really love? Are we talking about Hypnotyrannodon? We are talking about Hypnotyrannodon. We are talking about Sauron, and I want to talk about Sauron's behind-the-scenes origin, because so Sauron is a mutant energy vampire. He's, a, he's, a, he's basically a Jekyll Hyde myth. He's a scientist named Carl Lykos who can eat mutant energy and when he does, he turns, and the original plan um, that, that Roy Thomas proposed was that he would do this, he'd turn into a giant bat. Like a vampire. Now, this was coming out in the 60s and that was when the Comics Code Authority still had a lot of power. So they brought this idea to the CCA and the CCA was like, hell no, vampires aren't allowed, that's too close. So Roy Thomas came up with the best goddamn solution ever, which is, you know what? Screw it. He's not going to turn into a bat. He's going to turn into a pteranodon. I think that's actually way better. And given the choice, I would be a dinosaur vampire. I would. I would. I really wish this had caught on. I wish that like pteranodon vampires had become a thing. It would be like the latest, you know, teen movie. Like, you know, in Twilight, there's what's his face and he's all sparkling and then he just turns into a brontosaurus. Once they did that, they decided that they were basically going to throw him into the Savage Land, which is... So the real short version is the Savage Land is this hidden place in, I believe, Antarctica that's sort that's like a, a sort of slice out of dinosaur times. Like it's this steamy it's not, jungle though, with dinosaurs it's, it's, everywhere. And there's there's actually there's a great letter in one of the Silver Age letter columns where someone just takes Lee to task for how utterly, utterly, utterly paleontologically in, inaccurate um, the Savage Land is. It's it's like it's literally it co- it covers you know millions and millions of years spans eras and eras but it's a bunch of cavemen and dinosaurs and saber-toothed tigers and magic and it's ridiculous and that's where soren hangs out right um so you have him you have in the silver age you know some other villains who are going to come back but are really not going to make a big dent like you have the vanisher you see him a bunch he's a dude that can essentially teleport but they make it sound like he's vanishing instead you have the mimic who can absorb the powers of any mutants near him you have banshee who has this like sonic scream and is a jewel at first. And Banshee's going to come back in Giant Size X-Men number one in the 70s relaunch as actually a member of the X-Men. Mimic also joins the team briefly, but um, Banshee, again, is is mostly known as one of the X-Men. He's another villain who who switched sides. Right. So as far as uh, Silver Age villains go, go, especially early Silver Age villains, I'd say those are probably uh, the big ones. Those are the ones that either thematically tie in or at least, you know, have something cool about them like the Juggernaut that makes them appealing to writers and presumably readers. Now, this actually leads really well into our first reader question, which is um, from, I think, Ben Ben Gully on Twitter, who asks, and he's Franz Ferdinand too, I think, um, who asks, are there early villains that fell by the wayside? Is there a difference between those that did and didn't stick? There absolutely are. Uh, so we see villains like the Ogre and Kuklakan, who you've probably never heard of, and honestly, you don't need El to. El Tigre! I like that name, at least. Um, and, you know, you have, uh, I don't think they show up ever again. You have uh, villains like the Locust, who 
You know, his most recent appearance was actually in 2002, but the dude has showed up like five times ever and has never really made a dent. He just, you know, there was nothing special or memorable about him. And then you have villains like Lucifer, who I think we briefly alluded to in our previous episode. Lucifer is basically like he looks like Magneto, but with a squid, a, a squid shaped bag over his head instead of a helmet. Might be an upgrade. Hard to say. But not an upgrade. Here's this character who you'd think would be really important. Like he is the original reason, supposedly, that Xavier lost his legs. He's, oh, the original. This has been a retcon so many different ways since that. Oh. Right. But I mean, you know, he, he was set up as like, hey, this guy's going to be a big deal. Like the X-Men and the Avengers end up clashing, uh, going up against him. But he kind of ends up just fizzling out despite his, you know, seeming importance initially, despite the fact that he shows up a couple times in really big ways. He turns out to be an alien. He's just he's he's all over the place. They never really they, they build him up as important, but never really figure out why. And he doesn't he doesn't make it out of the Silver Age. And I think what that is, is, you know, there's not really a good X-Men thematic elevator pitch. I mean, you know, with Magneto, there's the philosophy thing with the juggernaut. There's the brother thing and the have to team up to fight him thing. You know, the brotherhood speak for themselves. But this guy you know, you'd sort of uh, go back and forth and back and forth just trying to come up with a way to describe him interestingly. He doesn't show up. So, yeah, I think really what it is is it's the um, the thematic relevance that makes a villain stick or not. So we have another question. Uh, this is from Adam P. Nave. Uh, also on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So this is about a villain we haven't mentioned who probably falls into the falls by the wayside category, but... How could Eunice the Untouchable be alive? Wouldn't he starve to death or something? Um, Eunice the Untouchable actually doesn't fall by the wayside. He is someone who comes back periodically as a minor character, but he's never he's never been a really big deal iconic villain. The answer to this is that Eunice can actually control his powers. Um, he's got a, a force field that that makes him, you know, as, as his name implies, untouchable. Um, originally, his force he says it, it only repels threats. It's somehow intention sensitive. But basically, after that one line, it's treated as something he can deliberately control. And that's actually how the X-Men stop him the first time. Um, Beast builds a ray gun that can amp up his powers so much that he can't eat and he can't touch anything. And he finally agrees to go straight as a way to get them to reverse it. So uh, someone asked, and I I didn't get the username when I pasted this, I'm sorry. Um, I have never been able to make sense of Sauron's backstory. Could you try? So the answer is sort of. Um... One of the things we that was our goal in creating this podcast is we want to attempt to help make sense of what's a very complex and convoluted mythology around thousands and thousands of comics and many movies and cartoons. Now, there is a lot of that continuity, and a lot of it matters, but sometimes... Sometimes it, it really it really doesn't. Like, you know, you'll have things like uh, Magneto's backstory and the deal with him in concentration camps, and that stuff is going to matter. It doesn't really matter that Carl Lycos was essentially bitten by a mutant pterodactyl because that's not really going to factor in later. A lot of what this podcast is requiring us to do is to sort of filter through what doesn't matter to get to what does. What you need to know about Sauron, the stuff that will affect your ability to understand him as a character, understand his appearances, and understand his impact on the X-Men, is that he is a scientist who turns into a hypnoterodactyl. That's really it. And I wish I was too. I think we've all got a hypnoterodactyl inside of us, just waiting to come out. That's that's the true meaning of Sauron. And Christmas. So, uh, with that, I think that's uh, about what we have for uh, for this week. Uh, remember to check us out online. We are at rachelandmiles.com, the podcast. We've got the podcast there. Also, panels and links that we, re- that we um, referenced this week. We're also available on iTunes, Stitch, and Stitcher. Yeah, go ahead and download us, and please, please uh, rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher, or anywhere else that's relevant. 
Now, next week, Miles is going to be out of town. He's going to be in Chicago at C2E2. So if you're there, stop by the Dark Horse Comics booth and say hi. I will be holding down the fort and I will be joined by emergency backup co-host Chris Sims, um, who you might know from War, War Rocket Ajax, Movie Fighters, Comics Alliance and elsewhere. And we are going to be taking a break from the Silver Age to talk about the 1990s X-Men animated series. Okay, thanks again uh, to all of you for listening. Tell your friends. We love you all. Thanks again to Bobby Roberts for producing. And Rachel, we'll see you in one week, and I'll see you in two. Yeah.